Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your healthcare show host, Christine Hargis, and it's March 1st. I'm in Alexandria, Virginia at Full HQ, and I have healthcare contributor Todd Campbell on the line. Todd, welcome to another week of Industry Focus. Hi, Christine. It's a pleasure to be here. How are you today? Doing great. I am excited for today's episode. We want to tackle a pretty important question, which is, why are prescription drugs so darn expensive? And we will attempt to answer that on this show. And then after that, we wanted to give you some specific actionable advice that we think can improve all of our listeners investing immediately. So it should be a good one. Let's dive in. So uh, we'll start with the drug question. Why are drugs priced the way they are? If you have been reading the news lately, you've seen headlines about price gouging and healthcare reform. This is a hot button issue, and it affects the vast majority of our wallets directly. And there's a lot of political attention being given to it as well. We've had some listeners write in expressing concern about drug pricing and asking us questions. So we figured we would try to boil it down and have a conversation about what exactly goes into a drug price. What do you think, Todd? Christine, you know, I blame biologics. That's fair. Yeah, for background, biologics are these big, complicated drugs. They're relatively new compared to the basic type of drug, which is a small molecule drug. And since they're so big and tricky, they're expensive too. Yeah, I mean, you know, let's fast go back like 20 years or whatever, and we were just talking about small molecule chemical uh, produced drugs. And um, those are relatively easy to produce, easy to duplicate. And the rate of inflation associated with drug prices, you know, 20 years ago was much, much less than it is today. And I really think that a lot of it has to do with the complexity that's associated with building out these new next generation therapies. They work better, right? Um, but they're also more complex to build. And, you know, there's a lot of failure that goes into developing drugs. And when you compare, you know, combine the complexity plus the failure rates, um, you end up with you know, higher cost to produce, and you know those costs obviously getting translated uh, into higher costs that payers have to pay. Right, and so that's the most obvious argument that you hear from drug makers about their drug prices. Is, oh, well, we need to recoup our investment. You know, we spent ten years trying to develop this drug, and not only that, but we also had years and years before that of trying and failing on other drugs. I mean, it's it's very expensive to run trials, and the majority of trials end up failing and are never commercialized at all. Right, and I think investors have to remember too that this isn't. This isn't a free market, if you will. I mean, it's it's a regulatory controlled market because of patents, right? So it's not like you're going out, you're developing this drug, and then you're competing instantaneously with 10 other people that are going to drive down the price. No, you have a monopoly, if you will, um, to recoup the, the, the expense that you incurred over that course, that 10-year period. So, you know, there's a lot of different things that are going into this. And I think that over the last couple of years, you really saw, you know, the, the whole conversation blow up, if you will, uh, because of these revelations that, you know, people were going out and buying drugs that had been around a while and jacking up the price 200 or 300 percent. But it's not just those one time, you know, price increases. I mean, it's much more systematic than that. Um, you know, Christine, that I like to put you on the spot. Oh, boy. Here we go. All right, so I'm going to put you and the listeners <laughs> on the spot here, and uh, you know, in researching the show, you know, background for the show, uh, I, I always turn to like Express Scripts as a pharmacy benefit manager, and we'll get to that part in in a minute. But the, every year they put together a report that basically dives into the 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 nuts and bolts of the figures behind 
uh, drug costs. And one of the things that they do, I think is really interesting, Christine, is that they, back in 2008, they created a basket of, of commonly used brand name drugs. And they set that basket at, at a base price of 100 bucks. And then they also decided to evaluate how that price changed over time uh, against, or contrast it, against a basket of just typical household goods, also costing $100 back in 2008. Okay, so, so this the question is like a... that I have for you, Christine, and is... for listeners, is to guess. Uh, how much do you think that that $100 uh, basket of goods uh, for the drugs is it now now goes for? And I'm going to give you I'm going to give you a, a hint or like a, a, something to con- to compare it to, and that's that the household goods basket uh, is $114.38 now. So you went from 100 to 114.38. Any guess where uh, we stand on that drug basket? So remind me of the initial year where it was $100. So it's 2008. So 2008 to now, household household basket has gone up. What 14.4 percent? We'll call it over that whole period to 114.38. I would definitely guess it would be a lot more. I'm going to say 180. 307. Oh my gosh. Yeah, 307. 208 percent increase since 2008. So that's I mean, insane. I think that that's really you know what's brought us to this breaking point where it's now become part of our common conversation. You know, I mean, we have it over Thanksgiving or Christmas Day. Everybody's talking about drug prices, right? Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, but I think another part to that that's really important to mention is that, and I assume that this is true of the Express Scripts report, but that's list prices yes correct it's list prices and in what's interesting is when you when you look at you know there's a lot of players in how a drug gets produced and then actually delivered and put in your hand right there's there's all sorts of middle people yeah so when i say list price i mean that's what the company says is the sticker price but that's not really what ends up getting paid so like you said there are all these middlemen i mean you have you mentioned express scripts is a pbm a pharmacy benefits manager uh that's somebody that kind of negotiates between the payers and the uh, the drug makers for these prices you have insurers trying to take a cut uh, so you you have all of these different people that are that are getting in the way of it. There's the distributor who sends the drugs themselves to the pharmacy. I mean, everybody needs to make their little bit of profit, and so there ends up being a pretty substantial discount to that list price. For example, I was reading a report from IMS Health, which is a research firm. They say that even though list prices for drugs rose 12% in 2015 alone, net prices grew only 2.8%. Right. And, you know, that's backed up, Christine, by uh, Express Scripts report um, this year, which showed that last year uh, the list price on average climbed 10.7 percent. But after rebates and discounts, the net price was only up two and a half percent. So, yeah, you're right. There's a very big difference between that manufacturer suggested retail price. You know, we're talking about cars here. Right. And whatever the true car value would be, maybe. Of um, of what people are actually paying for it, but you're still talking about over time growth that's significantly in excess of uh, the typical you know inflation measure, you know consumer price index. Exactly, and while on one hand I think you could argue that these drugs are getting better and better, and so they're they're adding years to people's lives, and so they're it's not really comparable to the type of, of medicine that people were paying for years ago. This is still a problem, and it's been a strain on a lot of people's pockets, particularly in the United States. I mean, in this country, the way that we do healthcare is pretty different from the rest of the world, and it, 
because of, of these elements and because the standard of living is so high, drug makers can effectively get away with this kind of pricing. And I think when you boil it all down, the drug makers are just trying to figure out kind of what they can get away with. How much money can we make for this drug? And that's the price they set. You know, and often that involves seeing what insurers are paying for competing drugs and evaluating how your new drug compares to some of the existing ones on the market. And ultimately, it's kind of just a, a repeating cycle where if you have expensive drug prices and you have a small improvement on it, and you know that insurers were willing to pay X, and you have an even better drug, then you're going to add to that price. Right, and there's not a lot of price transparency. So I mean, you, you've got the list, list price, right? Okay, so people know that, but that the net discount—that's a trade secret. You know, you're not going to decide. Pine Gilead's going to tell AbbVie what it is that they're willing to discount their hepatitis C drug for. You know, they're they're going to try and negotiate those deals the best they can with each one of these participants. And you know, in the U.S., you talked about globally. I mean, the U.S. is a different system. We don't give Medicare the ability to go out and negotiate prices directly with drug makers, right? We have each one of these individual uh, payers, so United Health Group or Cigna or Aetna or whatever, going out and sitting down and saying, okay, give me your best price. And of course, that's going to depend a lot on, you know, how many patients they represent. You know, okay, well, if I can get an exclusivity deal, maybe I give them a better discount. Or if I can't get an exclusivity deal, maybe I don't give them as big a discount. And that's different than other countries where, you know, for example, the United Kingdom, we like to talk about a lot because that's probably the biggest difference between the two and the way they, they approve drugs uh, for use among the patient population in relation to pricing. Yeah, and, and I really do find their system absolutely fascinating. So they have this concept in the EU that's called quality adjusted life years, qualies. And so this is a concept that tries to put the value of a drug in terms of the quality of life achieved after taking the drug. So essentially, if the drug adds a year to your life at complete total health, 100% quality, that's one quality, quality, quality adjusted life year. Or say it adds two years to your life, but you're only at 50% of your well-being and your health. And I have no idea how you actually measure quality of life. But say it's you know half half of a quality of life measurement. So that would be one half times two, which is again one quality. Yeah, exactly. You go from zero being death, right? Not much quality of life there. Uh, up until the full one, and that would be you know living a perfectly normal, healthy, happy life. And you're right. You touched on probably one of the biggest drawbacks or or, uh, or knocks against using quality, which is the subjectivity of how do you determine between zero and one what that quality of life is. I mean, you can, you know, look at statistics and say, okay, well, if this drug added one year in overall survival, then I know that that's one year. But then you get subjective when you start asking people to 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 self-report. Well, would you trade? five years at 0.05 health for two years at one health. And those subjective measurements um, make quality a little bit of a moving target. Um, NICE, which is the watchdog for uh, the UK drug system, uses quality as a, as a leveraging tool. So they can go out and say to the drug maker, listen, you know, if I take the cost and I divide it by the quality and it comes out, say it's a $100,000 drug and it's a one uh, one year of life at, at perfect health, then it's a hundred thousand dollar quality. That's too pricey for us. You're going to have to bring that down to say fifty thousand for us to approve it. So for them, they use it as a negotiating tactic. Um, it's a much harder, obviously, as investors to try and figure out. Okay, well, 
if we're going to try and determine, because we know that there's so much price uncertainty, uh, how are we going to figure out whether or not a drug is going to get approved in other markets, or how are we going to find out whether or not that's a fair price to charge, you know, for a drug here in the U.S.? It's it's very hard for us, right, as investors, because we either eyeball it and we say, okay, well, other drugs are selling for this, and this one's a little bit safer, so maybe it gets a little bit of a premium. Or we try and compute quality on our own, which is impossible because we can't go out and talk to the people who participated in the trials and figure out, you know, just how much their quality of life improved. I mean, we can make some guesstimates and and say, well, let's map it out at 0.05 or let's map it out at one or whatever. It's just for investors, it's a it's, it makes for a lot of uncertainty and difficulty in valuing what these drugs, you know. Yeah, when you go to figure out. Back. When you go to try to figure out a peak sales estimate, that's got to be the hardest part of it, is trying to nail down exactly what price not only the drug maker will set, but they'll actually end up receiving, both in the US and abroad, because both systems clearly are very, very complex. So I right and right and you know you you talked earlier about you know the cost to develop these drugs. I mean, what, do you know, Christine, uh, what the the latest average cost was to for drug development that's cited? I believe it's two point six billion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, for a over the last drug. few years, I think it's gone from one point four billion over to, to over two billion, like you said. Um, but again, you got to take all of those things with a grain of salt, right? Because that's including that's average. That includes all the failed trials too. I mean, so you know, you could have a company that does extremely well, is very efficient, uh, and they get one drug on the market, and maybe it costs them a fraction, a couple hundred million dollars. So I mean, it's it, it you could assume that maybe the innovation over time will reduce the number of drug failures in in clinical trials because they'll determine earlier on that these will fail. And that they'll never enter the the clinic, and then maybe that brings pricing down somehow. I mean, this is not going to go away. It's certainly not an easy um, problem to to solve, either from you know a policy standpoint, or either or as investors trying to figure out you know what's what's the sweet spot for pricing for a particular drug that might might get rolled out. Exactly. And I know we're only scratching the surface of truly understanding this tangled web of reimbursement models and drug maker margins and everything that makes drug prices as high as they are. But I also wanted to leave some time in the episode to give our listeners an investing strategy that minimizes your risk and is actually very likely to increase your return over a long period of time, which kind of sounds like it's a miracle strategy. But it's something pretty simple, and it's called dollar cost averaging. Todd, I'm going to toss it over to you to explain what exactly that is. This is probably one of the most powerful ways of investing, and it's also one of the absolute simplest, right? All you have to do is say, okay, I'm going to commit to investing a specific amount of money every month or for some specific interval. So, you know, for example, you could say I'm going to invest $100 a month regardless of whether or not stocks rise or fall, $100 a month every month from now until the end of time. Right. And so the whole point of this is that once you commit to that and you're you're setting a fixed dollar amount, you end up buying more shares of whatever the security is when prices are low and fewer shares when prices are high. So I'm going to run through an example of how exactly that works. Take a stock. Well, we mentioned Gilead Sciences earlier. We'll, we'll go with Gilead. So Gilead is trading at $100 right now. <laughs> I wish. Anyway, so you want to invest $30,000. That would give you 300 shares. So, stay instead you're interested in dollar cost averaging into that position over three months. And so, you still have your $30,000 and you're going to do $10,000 worth every month. So, uh, initially, Gilead is still trading at $100, so you buy your 100 shares. 
let's say next month it's up to $110. So you buy another $10,000 worth and you wind up with 91 shares. Then next month it's down to $90. So that same $10,000 gets you 111 shares. So add that all up after those three months, and the dollar cost averaging strategy gives you 302 shares, which is two extra shares when you compare it to buying all at once $30,000 at $100. And if you look at your cost basis on those shares, it's $99 instead of $100, which that doesn't sound like a lot, but if you extend this example over a longer period of time, the difference is more pronounced, and it's, that's also something that we have academic studies confirming. But Christine, can't I just put it all to work at one point in time and then make more money? That would be the the buying in at, at one hundred dollars, thirty thousand. You would have three hundred shares. Your cost basis would be a hundred dollars. And if you run through the math of my example, it's just not as good of a strategy. Yeah, and the the major advantage of dollar cost averaging that Christine just beautifully walked through is that it smooths out your risk and your return, right? So it helps to reduce the volatility in your returns. Now, there's no getting around the fact that if you're in a skyrocketing market, say, for example, coming out of the Great Recession up through now, um, you if you had timed it perfectly and bought on you know March 2009, you would have done better by putting all the money to work all at once, right? Uh, because it's been a pretty straight line up. But the reality is that markets rise and they fall. And the vast majority of people, uh, even some of the most talented investors of our generation, recognize that trying to time the market is, it, it, it's impossible. I don't want to say it's impossible. Highly unlikely that you're going to be able to do that consistently over and over and over again. Exactly. And something that we talk a lot about here at The Motley Fool is taking the emotion out of your investing. So it's important that even when the market is dipping and prices are low, you need to still make that key purchase of those same dollar amount of shares at the low purchase point to make this equation work out. And that way. Oh, yeah. Right. Because the emotional component of that, right? Oh, well, the market's too expensive. Oh, the market's going to go to zero. Um, and as soon as you start adjusting or messing with how much money you're going to put in or whatever, you run the risk of shooting yourself in the foot on this strategy. Uh, you know, set it and forget it. You can adjust it up over time as you're making more money or whatever. But have a certain amount of money, go in, don't get too cute with it because. You know, over time, studies have shown. Matter of fact, I I don't remember which firm did it. I just read it recently. I have to look it up, Christine. But it stuck in my head that the study showed that people who sold in the Great Recession to try and protect themselves, they didn't get back into the market uh, in time. And as a result, people who just held through the whole Great Recession are way ahead of these people who tried to market time and reduce the risk by selling and then trying to buy back in at a different time. Or you could look at it a different way. Warren Buffett made a great bet um, where he basically said nine years ago, I think that if you just buy a passively managed low cost index fund, it would outperform the best stock pickers out there, uh, actively managed funds, hedge funds. And someone took the other side of that bet. And sure, sure enough, in his, his annual report to investors, he just updated the, the results. And the passive investing strategy has returned 7% compounded annually, where the active investment has only returned 2.2% compounded annually. And I think what that shows you is that, you know, if you just use a dollar cost averaging type strategy and continue and commit to it and don't try to get too cute with it, you'll probably come out far better off than you would otherwise. 
Exactly. And as you mentioned a little bit ago, you can set it and forget it. I imagine that most interfaces have this option. I personally use Capital One Investing, which was formerly ShareBuilder. I know for a fact that they offer actually a smaller trade commission when you do this, if you set up a, a regularly scheduled trade. And you can plug in, I want to buy this dollar amount at this frequency at this time, and here's exactly what I want it to go to. And when you were talking about the Buffett bet, Todd, it reminded me we should probably hit on what exactly people should be putting their money into. I mean, we talk a lot about individual stocks, but it's kind of tough to commit to buying, say, $1,000 of Gilead at regular intervals over the next indefinite time period, because then you probably should be keeping up and doing your due diligence on Gilead every single month. But one really good way to employ this strategy without the stress of having to handpick stocks to employ it with is going with an ETF. Yeah, absolutely. We talk about this over and over and over in the show. Diversification is very important, especially when you're talking about the healthcare uh, sector. And by using ETFs, you can get exposure to a lot of different stocks within specific subsets of healthcare. So you could, for, for example, buy the XLV, which is a broader ETF of healthcare stocks, or if you want just biotech, you could buy the IBB, which is um, you know a portfolio comprising of some of the biggest. Um, biotech stocks. And by by focusing on these ETFs, which typically, by the way, are a little bit less expensive as far as management fees, um, you can you know avoid some of that that risk, as you just alluded to, of buying a stock maybe where something changes dynamically over a course of a 10-year period and you no longer really want to be investing in that. I'm thinking Polaroid jumps to mind as an example of that. Exactly. So, this is a strategy that clearly has a lot of upside to it. Uh, I do want to point out, I think a lot of people listening to this show are actually already doing this, maybe without even knowing it, in their 401ks. So, that's essentially what your 401k is, is you're committing to a certain amount of money at a regular interval, and it invests that money regardless of the market conditions. So, give yourself a pat on the back if you're already dollarcast averaging into your 401k. Oh geez, you know, Christine, that just reminded me of something else too that we can, you know, if if you're a listener out there and you happen to have a 401k plan and you're doing your dollar cost averaging from having, you know, the money invested every month out of your paycheck, a lot of these 401k plans are now offering auto escalating features where you can go in, sit down, and talk to your human resource department and have them increase your contribution by say a percent uh, or two percent every year, and that's a fantastic way to increase the amount that your dollar cost averaging over time, theoretically to build yourself even a bigger nest egg for retirement. And I do find that when you do those types of set it and forget it strategies where it just automatically takes money from your paycheck and funnels it somewhere productive, you don't miss the money. You never see it, so you can't spend it. Right. And if you're doing it on uh, automatically, even with the increases, I mean, you don't have to worry so much about the busting your budget, right? Having to play catch up and, and making these large contributions uh, later on in your working career to try to make up for the years that you didn't do as much uh, earlier on. And, and, you know, that's so important because if investing becomes hard and you start having to choose between, okay, you know, how many groceries can I buy this week versus, you know, putting money into my retirement account, um, the retirement accounts get end up losing. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, that is a fantastic strategy. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for being on the show in general today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. 
So as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against them. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear, regardless of whether you are dollar cost averaging into them or not. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!